All right, everybody, um, the clock just turned to four. So um, we're, let's be prompt here. So um, I'd like to say hi to everybody and thank you for coming to our session. Our session is entitled Building Digital Archives, Lessons Learned from Four Crowdsourced Online Projects. So um, I'm David McKenzie, chairing the session, Digital Projects Manager at Ford's Theater, where I've been for the past 11 months, and was mainly hired to do a project called Remembering Lincoln, I'm telling you guys a little bit about that further on in this discussion. And um, also have our fellow panelists here. They can introduce themselves more thoroughly, but it's fun to say um, Catherine Keen Fields from the Litchfield Historical Society in Connecticut. Dr. Lorraine McConaughey from the Washington State Historical Society, and Jason Crable from the Ohio History Connection. So um, just a few little housekeeping things. First, um, we're going to do questions at the end. We've made sure to block off some time. But um, so we really want your questions, though. We really, really want to know what, what you want to know. And also, as I'm sure some of the other chairs have been reminding everybody this morning or this afternoon, that you know, this, take from this what you will. We're telling you guys about our experiences. Everybody has their own interests and you know, things, that, things that work and don't work for your institution and for yourself. But you know, this is, you know, we hope that this helps to, helps to guide um, some of this. Also, the session's being recorded. So um, we, we will be, um, when you do questions, we'll be passing out microphone for you to, so please, you know, state anything into the microphone. So, um, and most important thing is just have fun. So, um, let's say, so the term crowdsourcing, how many of you have heard that term before? I'm going to crowdsource here. Okay, so yeah, crowdsourcing is kind of a buzzword. And it's a buzzword that can evoke a lot of strong emotions. Some of us in this room were at a planning meeting that we did at Ford's for our, um, for our project, and we literally had tears at the meeting when we discussed crowdsourcing. So um, it's made for a nice little, uh, nice little vignette, by the way, but um, it's been very... Uh, so, you know, we, um, for our purposes, you know, what is crowdsourcing? It's got a ton of definitions. It's, you know, essentially taking from you know, mass participation and building something. That's a very vague definition. So for our purposes here, we really can say there are three different definitions of crowdsourcing in the um, history world. Archi crowdsourcing of archival and collections material. And in this case, we're distinguishing here between two kinds, institutional and individual. So, um, Two of our projects are really more institutional with some individual elements. Others, the other two are more, much more individual, working with you know, person to person to crowdsource archival material. Then also there's metadata. So we're going to ha have a talk about metadata as well, including transcription, which is one of the main ways that a lot of institutions are using crowdsourcing. And also user-generated content. We're not going to get into that as much in this in this session, but that can also be one of, in some ways, the most divisive and controversial forms of crowdsourcing. 
So again, who is doing the contribution, general public or other institutions? So kind of the big picture takeaways here, you do need a lot of outreach, whether it's with institutions or with individuals. Um, it, but it is something that can be really valuable for all, for all parties involved, depending on what the objectives are. And that's something really important, too, is don't just crowdsource for the sake of crowdsourcing. You know, we all hear, you know, so many of our hands went up. It's a big thing right now. But does it really work for what you are trying to do? That's the most important part. So now I'm going to have Jason come up and talk about a project that the Ohio History Connection is doing. Let me just get his presentation up here. Yep, yep, that's yours. Jason's was on another screen, and I am. Let me just reopen it. Here we go. All, All right. right, great. And thank you. Afternoon, everybody. Um, and I know there are people behind there that can't see me, and I can't see you. But as long as you can see the screen, uh, afternoon to you as well. Uh, no crying during this. I don't, I don't think we'll get there, but at least not from you guys. <laughs> I may cry. All right. So uh, crowdsourcing in Ohio memory. Uh, I am Jason Crable. I'm manager of curatorial services at the Ohio History Connection, uh, formerly the Ohio Historical Society. Um, and um, until February of this year, I was uh, um, director of Ohio memory. So um, we're going to talk about how we've used um, crowdsourcing through the Ohio Memory platform, a little bit about what Ohio Memory is so you know what I'm talking about, um, in various ways um, and what that looks like. All right, so um, Ohio Memory is, uh, was found, founded in um, uh, 2000. It, is, it was based, the model is based off American memory, right? It's a statewide, uh, it was a statewide effort in preparation for the Ohio Bicentennial in 2003. Uh, largely funded by grants, um, and uh, the idea was essentially um, for organizations around the state, they were invited to um, send images from their materials from their collections um, that were common to all Ohioans, um, unique to spe specific local communities, and that would complement each other and provide a uh, well-rounded um, uh, summary uh, uh, of materials. Um, format types for the initial version of Ohio Memory, your basic e things that were easily scanned, uh, manuscripts, photographs, books, newspapers, and then uh, objects if, if, uh, if you took, uh, were able to take photographs of them. Um, so by 2003, uh, there were over 250 institutions around the state of Ohio that had participated. Again, this was send us your images and we will, uh, uh, as contributions to the project. Um, and uh, over 15,000 objects had, were up, uploaded to the repository by then. This is uh, Ohio Memory today. It uh, switched in 2008 from this, in, this sort of in-house uh, system where we were gathering from organizations all over and just kind of contributing to um, the, essentially the funding ran out, and so we had to find a different model, and we moved from a model where it was free to participate to a subscription model for organizations. So we are still, at this point, talking about 
organizational uh, participation. And um, with that uh, uh, subscription, there were um, some changes. We were able to increase the kinds of materials that could be uploaded to include audio and video. So oral histories um, became a big part of what organizations started to uh, contribute. And you can see that, um, that we uh, essentially, the, bo the borders of Ohio match the outline of the, of the dots there. Um, we cover all 88 counties in the state, a variety of cultural heritage institutions that include historical societies, public libraries, special libraries, um, and there, uh, as I, uh, over 360 participates, participating institutions. The institutions that uh, participate now in the, in, the current, um, in the current iteration of Ohio Memory, all of the material that was contributed before 2003 is still in the, is still in the repository. Uh, and or before 2008 is still in the repository. And then um, with, the, with the organizations that have come in since then, um, we've been able to offer more features. So um, this is Dublin Memories. This is one of the organizations that, a, that is a subscribing partner. Um, the partners get their own page for their own collection that they can use as a, as a portal for their material. Or they can enter, or people can enter through the broader Ohio Memory page and uh, and get materials across all of the collections. So there are multiple points of entry um, for the materials. Um, so that's sort of an overview of Ohio Memory, just to give you a framework. Um, I I went into Ohio Memory to the point someone made earlier uh, uh, about crowdsourcing as a historical term. Um, I went into Ohio Memory looking, I typed crowdsourcing. Of course, nothing came up. Why would it? So then I put crowd. This is a picture of um, Bob Hope welcoming the crowd. It's the, it's the parade for Neil Armstrong when he returned to Wapakoneta, Ohio after, his, uh, after landing on the moon. So that was a great picture of a crowd, I thought. Why not? See, laughter, fun, no tears. All right, so crowdsourcing in Ohio memory, what, what we're talking about, and I'm going to talk a little bit about each of these in a little bit more detail. We're talking about um, community collections, uh, which I'll explain in a minute, virtual volunteers, um, organizational volunteers, the use of tags and comments, um, partner efforts, and then uh, an example of, uh, to call it crowdsourcing is, uh, eh, but it's a, it, I think it may, there's, a, there's a good connection that, that I think is important to, to mention, so I included the Ohio Memory Madness as well. This is a volunteer fire department from Middleport, Ohio, volunteers. All right, so community collections. Um, in anticipation of the um, Civil War sesquicentennial, um, we decided to dip our toes into crowdsourcing. Um, as I said, Ohio Memory, up until this point, had been entirely organization-based. Um, uh, David referenced hand-holding being an important part of crowdsourcing. I think we're going to hear a little more about that from some other speakers. Um, you can't, you know, even with organizations, there's a lot of, of when we getting everybody in line, making sure they have all the resources they need, helping solve problems and doing that. It's, it's not a, here you go, run with it, and we'll see you in six months. There's a lot of interaction that occurs. Um, so we assumed, if that's true with organizations, oh my gosh, with individuals, with their own collections, 
when you know someone can sell a collection tomorrow and you know we just we there was a whole new world so we decided to do a small project um, called the community collection um, around Civil War materials so this is the brochure that we shared uh, with folks um, we sent it out to libraries around the state and uh, local history organizations and um, and we ended up getting about a dozen participants so not a very big project um, guidelines were very, very uh, uh, intricate, um, and, and uh, we had a digitization agreement that essentially said, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it's a fine balance with the digitization agreement, because on the one hand, you don't want to scare people away with legal language, right? This is their stuff. It's very personal to them. Um, you're essentially saying, we want to be able to use this material for whatever purpose we see down the road without having to come back to you, because we don't know where you're going to be. Um, uh, but at the same time, we are not taking your copyright away from you, so, um, we, t uh, so we, we needed to be very clear about that. Um, and so we were very careful with communicating what we were actually asking people for. Um, and really all we were asking for is uh, the ability to, to use their materials, to let them be shown on the website, to... Uh, um, uh, we did not offer um, uh, digitization, uh, or, or I'm sorry, rights and reproductions on this material. So uh, this material, um, e well, actually that's not true. We offered the option for them to select whether they would allow us to allow anyone to use it at our discretion. Um, we had some people that did, and, and um, I think actually m probably of the 12, probably seven that did not. So that's more than half. Um, but when I say we were, with the eligibility guidelines, that we were very specific, I know that it's sort of hard to see uh, on the screen there, but um, things like, uh, thing, we included things we would include, which essentially are easy, things that are easy to digitize, um, small, two-dimensional things. We have the ability, we have book scanners and those sorts of things, so we included books and, and those sorts of things because we can handle that. But then we also, on the right-hand side of the list, items uh, unlikely to be considered and you know it's stuff that people have that's related to civil war but we just we wanted to set the parameters so things like um, uh, quilts what do I have um, uniforms lar large three-dimensional things that are hard uh, hard to, to, to digitize or photograph essentially um, because we do have um, sort of quality standards when it comes to um, you know the images that go on to Ohio memory and we wanted this material to be integrated into the searches that people were looking for and those sorts of things and have the same, uh, as, as similar an experience as possible. Um, and then this is the information sheet that um, we used with the materials. We limited folks to five materials each. They came to us or to um, one of the sites around the state that we set up uh, to do this with. And we, the, when I say we set it up, we worked through an AmeriCorps program where we had uh, AmeriCorps volunteers uh, spread throughout the state doing, uh, working at local history organizations, and so we worked with those folks to set up the ability to, to do it throughout the, throughout the state, so they weren't all coming, having to come to, to Columbus to do it. But um, they had to give us, essentially, all the metadata up front, at least the, the bare minimum of metadata up front, because again, we were going to interact with them once, the likelihood that we were going to see them again was probably very low. 
Um, so the first page, the page on the left there, is the information we, re we requested, and it's all basic metadata information, you know, the, the, the data about the, the collections, which includes um, provenance, family history, what the material is, um, where it came from, all that, all that stuff. And then uh, the office use is, was staff, uh, the, the staff and the, uh, and the AmeriCorps members were responsible for making sure that we captured all of, all of the rest of the information and then um, attached subjects and other sorts of things to the, uh, to the information so that when it went into the, the digital archive or the digital repository, um, there was a standard for subject and all of that, uh, all of that metadata as well. Um, so as I said, we ended up with about 12 uh, participants over the course of about a year. Um, we reserved the right to um, not upload something, even if we scanned it, even if we digitized it. Um, I believe that happened in one case. Um, the, don the donors, I'm using you know, parentheses because they're donating the use of the image, although they're, you know, they're, they're keeping the actual material. Um, they got digital copies of high quality. You know, we scanned at our standards, so 600 DPI and, um, uh, and all of our rules about uh, borders and all of the rest. Um, but they got copies for themselves so that they could share them with their families, and then we integrated them into the community collection. And the community collection um, look essentially is the same as the, um, the local community collections, that Dublin Memories uh, collection, which is essentially, it gets its own page, it's identified as a community collection, it's uh, explained what it is, and you can search just among those materials, or um, if you do a broad search through Ohio Memory, it'll actually, that material will come up if the, if the search, if they're relevant materials for the search. So that's one type of crowdsourcing that we did. It was very specific, it was very regulated, um, it didn't get a lot of turnout, turnout but it did um, allow people who had materials uh, to share them with us and with, as part of this larger uh, uh, repository that is statewide and as you saw, um, very large. Um, and, and so it, it, was a nice, it was a nice way to include some of that material. Um, the next kind of, uh, of crowdsourcing is the use of virtual volunteers. We use um, ContentDM as our infrastructure for um, Ohio Memory. And one of the benefits of ContentDM is it's a web-based um, system. So we are able to have volunteers who can't be in our building do metadata through a uh, website that they're given a password for and they can get in uh, to the back end of ContentDM and we can sort of control what they can access and what they can't. And um, they can uh, do some of the processing for us. So one of the big projects that we've done this with are these grave registration cards. Um, it's a collection of over 300,000 cards um, of soldiers from Ohio that uh, it's essentially their burial record and they were um, uh, microfilmed. Um, so these are actually images from the microfilm. As a result of that, they were all hand typed. Um, they were photographed uh, in, onto microfilm and then um, scanned. So why do you need vol human volunteers for that? Why can't you do OCR, optical character recognition? Because you'll see on, on this, uh, this card, um, there's, some, uh, there's some darkness to it. This is actually, this is actually a pretty good one. Um, you and I can generally read it. 
um, a computer is going to have some problems with with it. You're probably going to get about a 50% um, accuracy rate on a card like that, and that's a pretty good one. Um, then you get the situation. If you look on the next of kin line, you'll see that it's a typewriter. So the typewriter, if you don't line it up right, you get text that runs through the line. The computer's not going to read that. There are those X's above lot number, row 18, all of that stuff. You know, they weren't, they weren't writing these things uh, to be read by a computer. They were, right, human eyes can make, human brains can make sense of that. So a virtual volunteer, a volunteer, um, is entering that information into the database. Um, it is a rote process. There is essentially, there are about seven uh, uh, lines of that information that is pretty consistent through all the records. And so those are the key elements that need to be recorded on all of them. Um, and, uh, and we have people doing that. Here's another one you can see in the, in the photography um, why that would be an issue there. So, um, so the use of virtual volunteers is really helpful. We can send them a list of file names. Um, they do the work. They let us know it's done. We go through and do some quality control work, clean up the, the issues that happen when you've got humans doing, you know, humans are not infallible either. Um, and that's really great. Virtual volunteers usually start out very, very excited. That lasts for a little while, <laughs> and then they get busy, or they move, you know. And so what happens is you either need to constantly, you know, you get your, you get your people who are committed and who you regularly work with, but the majority of those folks you lose after, um, after a couple months. They just, you know, it just happens. So matriculation happens, and, and it's a constant cycle to try to get new folks and, and keep, keep that up. So it's, it's not, a, again, it's not a um, starting line go uh, at, the, at the finish line, we're all done. It's a, it's a, constant, it's a constant process. Um, the next type of crowdsourcing we do is organization volunteers. And again, I love the, the fire department, uh, volunteer firemen. This, they're in a boat in this one, as you can see. Um, organization volunteers, what we mean by that is um, when you digitize a collection from, you know, an organization's collection, for example, um, we've found that if you can work with the organization. Um, we have a lot of records from church groups and um, local, local community groups and those sorts of things. Um, it's an opportunity for them to engage with you, to engage with their collection, um, and whether it's through virtual access or through coming in and, and working uh, with us um, physically, um, we use them, the organization's volunteers, who frankly have institutional knowledge about the materials and can provide Con, you know, metadata that, frankly, our, um, our archivists um, may know or may not or may have to do research to find out, whereas you've essentially got folks who, who have that already. Um, doesn't work, again, not all organizations um, will engage this way, not all, not all organizations can, but it's, it's one way to essentially crowdsource, in this case it's very targeted, it's the folks who, uh, who created the records um, or are in, in the organization that created the records to help you process the material, which is what crowdsourcing really in, in a lot of ways is about um, for us. Tags and comments. So this, uh, there are sort of two ways that tags and comments uh, work in, ter in terms of crowdsourcing. The first is essentially a way for people to just engage 
with you. So these examples are uh, ta tags or comment. These are comments about people connecting to the images. They found their grandfather in a photograph, or they found a building that you know a building that was torn down in their community. They remember as a child, or um, and and so they're engaging with us and letting us know how excited they are and how great it is that they've been able to make that connection through the material, which um, is great. It it. It, it doesn't give us metadata per se, although it can, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but it is, you know, we're always talking about how do, you know, how do we help people find relevance? And also, how do we measure that? Well, you don't get much more measurable than someone saying thank you for, I, I don't remember the exact language. It's so beautiful to see that my family, although all gone except for me and my sister, is still an icon in Marietta. Thanks so much for giving, for sharing, right? That's, that's meaningful for us, right? That's that intangible kind of stuff we, we, we only hear. In, well, this is a documented example of that. The other way tags and comments are helpful is you can actually ask people to help give you information. So uh, we had an exhibit um, that was a photograph exhibit that we put up, and we happened to have most of the, the photography in that collection digitized, the Albert Ewing collection. It's a, he was an itinerant photographer along the Ohio River um, around the turn of the 20th century, and it's an incredible collection. Um, but because he was an itinerant photographer, he was going to small towns, small communities on the, on the river, and taking photos of families, um, you know, people who this may be the only photograph that they ever took in their lives, right? Um, so we put a blog post up, and as part of the explanation of the, uh, of the exhibit and of the collection, we specifically asked, we said, we're opening up the comments and tagging. Please, if you have information about who these people are, where they are, any of that information, share it with us. You know, you've got the ability, you might as well try it. We didn't know what to expect, frankly. Um, we'd had mixed, you know, the, 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 we, a lot of our reactions had been you know, the thank you kinds of things. We hadn't had a whole lot of people uh, submitting uh, recommendations for um, metadata corrections or additions. Um, so here is a photograph from the collection. Um, this is, you can see um, the photograph is there and then the metadata, if you scroll down, you get the metadata and all of that. At the bottom of the page is the tags and comments section. Here's that photograph blown up so you can see what we're talking about here. Um, so it's a photo of a river, probably the Ohio, but where? And we got a whole uh, conversation. So uh, somebody explaining uh, Fort Harmer in the foreground, Bucky's Island in the Ohio River prior to 1902, since a bridge across the river uh, to Williamstown, West Virginia, was completed in 1903. So some context, right? So we didn't take that at face value. We did some research, and we were able to confirm that that seemed to be accurate. We, you know, it's essentially finding a needle in a haystack. Once you find the needle, you can confirm what type of metal it is and all the rest, right? So once we were able to have a point of reference, we were able to con confirm that, and we thanked the, the person and let them know that we, made, we changed the record, and you can see that they commented back and shared some more information. So um, that's one way, again, to get... Uh, to get folks, you know, that you're, you don't know who you're going to get, but you're opening it up, and it's, it's a great way for folks to, to participate um, with you uh, and, and feel empowered and also help, um, help you do your work. So I mentioned all of our partners. 
Um, we've currently, we currently have 18 current um, active Ohio Memory partners that are actively contributing on a regular basis as part of our, our, our current um, uh, system. Um, and we've encouraged them all to do this kind of thing. It's really easy. Um, I know that there have been uh, organizations that have done it in the past. They put things on their own websites that link to uh, you know, an image in Ohio Memory that they've got. You'll notice that this slide is blank because when I went looking for this presentation of a current example of it being done, I couldn't find one. So um, it's easy to say crowdsourcing can be easy, um, but you've got to do it. If, you know, um, you mentioned, David, um, don't crowdsource just to crowdsource. I would amend that a little bit to say if you just kind of want to get your toe in the water, start very small, something simple, um, and it would be helpful if the plan would be that that can grow so, so you have a larger vision for the crowdsourcing project, but um, uh, but crowdsourcing just to crowdsource, it's it's not it's one of those things I think based on our experience that is um, that requires you know it's a little like open source software, right? It's free, it's not really free, right? Crowdsourcing allows you to get information from the public. It's you open it up and all of that, but it still requires a lot of maintenance and a lot of care and a lot of of hand holding. So. Um, and the last piece I wanted to mention was Ohio Memory Madness, which uh, we started. This was our second year uh, uh, doing it. Um, and the reason I – and it's essentially 64 – this year it was 64 objects from the Ohio Memory Collection that, um, we, uh, that we put up. And they competed against each other and ended um, uh, with one, one uh, object to rule them all. Um, <laughs> Last year, we did uh, images of famous Ohioans, and the final was Tecumseh and John Glenn, uh, and um, Tecumseh won in the end at the very last minute. Uh, this year, there was, it was um, a, I believe it was eyeglasses from a collection from a, um, uh, it's a collection from a, a group of nuns in, um, Northwest Ohio, they were so excited. Uh, their, they, their object won at the end. Um, in the last hour of voting, the, their object got like 300 votes. So, you know, it's, it's, they're engaged, they're active. Um, but the, way, the, the reason this is here, the reason Ohio Memory Madness is in a, a talk about crowdsourcing is that in order to select the objects to start, we, we um, put out a blog post and asked people um, both in individuals and organizations to suggest objects to include, and that's how we came up with our list of 64 objects. So um, it's another way, again, when we're talking about crowdsourcing, there's crowdsourcing with a capital C and the, the, the Webster's definition, and then there's really how are you using people to accomplish your goals. And, um, and so these, these are multiple ways that we've done that. Um, I'll also mention, it's not in my slides, but I was thinking about this as we were talking earlier. Um, we also, uh, through Ohio's local history office, have a website called Remarkable Ohio, which is um, uh, all of the markers in the state, the historic markers. And it is essentially a crowdsourcing website, so folks can upload photographs of the markers, um, and they can help identify and, and add information. And so... Um, that's an, it's not Ohio memory, it's a different, um, a different thing, but it's another example of the way we've used crowdsourcing to really engage people in the act of doing history. Um, so that's it. Um, this has nothing to do with crowdsourcing, but I love that photo. 
Um, if you have any questions, my card is up here. Um, we can talk at, uh, in, a, in a question time. We can talk afterwards. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk with anyone. Uh, um, I'll be at the bar tonight. Uh, oh, this is being recorded. I will be studying tonight. Um, <laughs> and you can contact OhioMemory at OhioHistory.org if you've got specific questions about specific things we've done um, with, the, uh, with the program. So thank you. All right, next we are going to have Kathy. Let me just get you bring in your presentation and slideshow. Here we go. Thank you. Whoops, it went away. It will? Okay. It did. And uh, how do I moved the slides with the little arrow guy? Yep. The up arrow? I'm going to try it. The right era. Okay. So um, I'm from the Litchfield Historical Society in Litchfield, Connecticut, which is a small town in northwestern Connecticut. And we are a much smaller organization than the Ohio Historical Society. We have um, five staff members. And what we did was a project which um, we didn't know was going to turn into a crowdsourcing project. Um, for us, it was a project to wrangle a tremendous amount of information we had into a usable form that would help us and we thought would help researchers. And um, what we ended up with was that, but also um, with the ability for people to contact us with more information for this, this database. So um, Litchfield in the late 18th and early 19th centuries was the home to two really important educational institutions. The first one um, was the um, Litchfield Female Academy, which was a girls' school run by Sarah Pierce in Litchfield for about 33 years from 1792 to the 1830s. And um, the school attracted students from 13 states and territories, Canada and the West Indies. So students came from all over the country to go to the school. We've identified about um, 2,000 students who attended the school. We think there were probably about 3,000 total. So part of this project is to find those other 1,000. Um, and the Tapping Reeve Law School, with apologies to the College of William and Mary, my alma mater, was the first law school in the country. Um, run by Tapping Reeve. Um, also uh, opened the school in 1774, or started teaching in 1774. The school ran into the 1830s. We know of about 1,000 graduates of the law school, um, some famous and some not so famous. These are the famous ones. <laughs> um, so Aaron Burr, John C. Calhoun um, were at the law school. Harriet Beecher, Harriet Beecher and all of the other Beecher children, uh, male and female, um, attended the Litchfield Female Academy. but. There were many, many, many other um, people not quite so famous who are really fascinating and interesting, and again, from all over the country. So the law students came from as many states and territories as the female academy students, and then they went out everywhere. They went west, they went north, they went south. So what we had was a tremendous amount of information um, that we needed to deal with. We had 3,000 names of students. We had all this information that had been gathered over years and years and years of who the students were, where they came from, and what they did. Oops, sorry. Um, we do actually have a building for the law school, so the little um, building up in the corner is the Litchfield Law School, and the house is the Tapping Reef House. Um, John Langbein, who is a legal historian at Yale, brings a class up every year, and he stands in the law school and says, this was the largest law school in the Anglo-American world. <laughs> so it's pretty impressive. Um, what we have a lot of material that um, came with both the students at, at both of the schools. So we have um, portraits of students at the schools. We have costumes. 
we have things that the students made. So the thing in the uh, the piece in the upper left hand corner is this little tiny um, old woman in a shoe. Uh, we have needleworks and watercolors, and that's a picture of the female academy up in up in that corner. So it's an again, it's an enormous amount of data. We have archival material from all of from many of the law students. The students wrote wrote notes when they were given lectures, and they bound those into notebooks. And so we have um, there's over a thousand notebooks that are known all over, all over the country. And we had um, we had it all in a ex good old Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> um, and with you know six thousand. <laughs> names um, we had because we had 6,000 names because we thought we don't need to know just about the students we need to know who their parents were and who their brothers and sisters were because there's amazing again amazing connections between all of the students so they were the students at the law school married the students at the female academy or their brothers or sisters or cousins or they all knew each other um, and it was an amazing place to be um, Walt Woodward who is the Connecticut State historian in a lecture last week called Litchfield the first um, college party town in the United States because there was there was a lot going on with the students. So again um, we had the fields and we had lots of data and we and the Excel spreadsheet worked a little bit we could we could sort of sort things and we could we could figure out what we wanted but we decided what we wanted to do was a, a a pretty comprehensive database of all of the all of the students, so we called it the ledger because handwriting was really important in all of this. And um, so the first thing we did was we really thought that we knew there was a lot more information out there, and we wanted to try and get it in. So we were working on a pretty small budget at this point, so we made a nice little brochure that we mailed off to historical societies and universities and and places where we thought there might be information. We told them what we were doing, we gave them examples of what we were looking for, and it was abysmal. Nobody responded. Um, well, sorry, thank you. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, it was just a piece of paper that people got, and I don't think anybody, you know, people didn't, didn't sort of internalize what it was or, or what to do with it. So from that, we decided um, that we really needed to find some money and, and put this database together in a way that would engage people and that we, we could try and get people together. So um, it is a, it's, a, it's a searchable database that was built for us, and it um, gives the history of both schools and all of the people. You can browse, you can search, you can search on keywords, you can search on dates, times, places, and you can sort things in any way you want. So the, the screen on the right shows a sorting of, um, I guess, I think it's political parties that the law students belong to. And that must have been done early in the project because we know a lot more than the numbers the numbers that show up there. These guys were very political, and there are very few students that we, we know about whose, whose political party we don't know. Um, each student got his own page, so you can see that there's um, biographical information, there's information on his family, um, on his life, connections to other, to other people on the right-hand screen. So at the bottom, and I can't read it from here, but somewhere in there it tells what the related objects are. So you can you can click on a um, click on something and you'll get his his um, reminiscences up here, or you'll get a, a notebook, or you'll get another another portrait, or any number of things about about the particular student. Um, I didn't make the other screenshot. Somebody in my staff figured out how to put them all together, and I can't. So this is <laughs> the first th the the two the two images on the left. And the top on the right are the the page for Laura Wolcott there. So again, it, it's um, her connections. So you can see I think there's a lot of family connections there. The Wolcotts were a pretty important family in Litchfield, and a connection to one of the objects that that was hers. So 
um, it took a couple of years to build this. Um, we had a lot of, we had some grant money. And then once we did, we thought, all right, maybe this time people will contact us. And so we, we sent it out to as many um, places as we could find. So we did, um, we did, now that we could, we did searches on the United, places in the United States where students had come from or students went, and we sent emails and um, connections to those. We sent to university um, history departments, art history departments, and genealogical societies, and whatever. So this was a little bit more of an informal crowdsourcing, I guess, and we, we backed into it. We didn't know that's what we were going to be doing, or we didn't even know that's what we were doing until we, until we got into it. So we just really asked for people to send us information, and then we would figure out what we, what we wanted to do with it. And, and this time it, it worked to the point where we're, we're overwhelmed with the amount of information and material that's coming in. So we're getting information from very serious genealogists, um, college professors, college students, um, a group that we're calling emerging scholars, and I'll talk a little bit more about them, descendants of students at the schools, and I, they're slightly different than the genealogists because they, they have something really specific that they want to tell us, and staff from other museums and historical societies. So. We had the 6,000 names, and um, with 6,000 names, we couldn't have complete information on all 6,000 students. They're not all as well known to us as Laura Rankin or whoever else that was. So, um, so in some cases, we just have a name and a date when they were at the school. In some cases, we know their hometown, but we didn't know anything else. And, and that's the kind of information people started to send us because people doing genealogy or people doing research are gonna find, these, find this when they, when they do a Google search. And, Sometimes we got people who are kind of like, what's the matter with you? You don't have the information on my, you know. And, and then they would send it to us. And so we would confirm it as best we could, thank them profusely for what they gave us and, and put it up. And it started to grow that way. And through that, we've been able to do some interesting things that, that we, again, that we didn't plan. We've been able to make connections with, connect people who didn't know they were connected. So last year, we had a family who sent us all sorts of photographs of, um, and images from their particular student at the Female Academy. And then just a couple weeks ago, we had somebody come into the research library researching the same family. She said, where did you get all these pictures? Well, we were able to put those two people together so that we're be we, can do, we can do that kind of thing. We're not always right. <laughs> um, and that's one of the things that we really had to understand was that people are gonna correct our information. And usually it's, it's a date or a place or, some, or something simple. Um, again, not too long ago, someone contacted us. We had an image of a, a congressman um, who was a graduate of the law school and the gentleman told us that it was not the congressman, it was an actor of the same name <laughs> from, <laughs> who was contemporary. And we had gotten our image from some congressional website. So um, it's, you know, all of us in history know that bad information perpetuates. So, you know, if somebody says it's true, then it, it keeps being true. And so we had to sort of work our way back with the congressional people to, to get that correct. So that th things like that happen. Um, sometimes it's university professors um, who, are, who are doing interesting work. Um, we had the girls at the Female Academy. One of the cool things that Sarah Pierce did was believe that women had a mind. So she taught them academic subjects along with the needleworky things. And to teach geography, she had them draw and paint maps. And so we have a professor from Colorado who's doing a map project and he's, you know, he's incorporating all of their work into, into, into his project. What we didn't know was gonna happen was this emerging scholar idea. Um, 
there are young guys and women out there who are doing dissertations who became really interested in this. And so we have four um, people that we know of, and I think there may be more out there, who are now writing dissertations that have a law school or a female academy connection. So they're giving us this whole new body of scholarship that will add to the database and add to our interpretation and all of the things that we can do. And, and at least one of them is, is so precisely um, about what, what this is about. He's um, publishing an article in the next journal of the early American Republic, and the title is The Litchfield Network, Education, Social Capital, and the Rise and Fall of a Political Dynasty. So the, I mean, we didn't really talk about the, the law school students, but 10% of them went to Congress. In 1800, 10% of the United States Congress were graduates of this school. Um, two vice presidents, three Supreme Court justices, 14 governors, and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, it goes on and on and on what these guys are doing. Um, so so th this information keeps coming, and my staff is completely behind in getting the information on because it becomes our responsibility to do that and our responsibility to, to check the information and make sure make sure that it's right. So we're, you know, we're working on that. And then we've had a whole sort of left shift that um, I think is going to bring us bring us into a whole a whole nother project, which is um, Yale, um, which is kind of cool when you're in Connecticut that Yale is right there. And Yale has a collection of something like 40 or 50 of the law school notebooks, and we have another 40 or 50 in our collection. And they recently got a grant from uh, a legal foundation to digitize all of their notebooks and put them on their website. And they offered to do ours at the same time. So a hundred and some notebooks are being digitized. They're putting them up here. They're linking each individual notebook to the ledger student, the ledger page on the student. And they had planned to do a, a website about the st with student biographies on it. And so we saved them from having to do that because, because they could link to what we did. And then the goal is, as once all of the digitization is done and the, the books are at the, the place right now, my archivist is just panicked. They all went away in one truck, just like really scared. <laughs> but they all got there safely, and I'm sure they'll all come back safely. Um, the next step is to, to try and do a transcription project so that um, to transcribe these books, it takes people who um, can really understand the law. There's a lot of legal Latin in there, and there's really sort of arcane stuff. So we're hoping that um, it, with Yale's help, we'll be able to do a transcription kind of crowdsourcing where we can get some of this stuff transcribed. And what's never been studied and what Yale, the Yale folks are really interested in is how what Reeve was teaching affected what these guys did when they went to Congress. For instance, John C. Calhoun was in Litchfield during the War of 1812 when Connecticut and New England decided they wanted to secede from the Union. Didn't happen because the war ended. So, but did Calhoun get his ideas of succession from Tapping Reeve? We don't know that, but it would be really fun if we could find it. So, um, it's you know it's it it's that's in the future, and it's what we're hoping to to work into. But so what started out for us was a, a data wrangling project turned into sort of through the back door a crowdsourcing project, and it's had benefits for us that we we couldn't have imagined could happen so for us it was a it's so far it's been a win-win but you know don't don't be afraid to try something you know don't get all grumpy if people tell you you're wrong because because you are a lot and um and you know dip your foot in and try it and i think 
one of the things that we're trying to show and and that is apparent i think i hope is that that crowdsourcing with a small c can really mean anything it can mean a lot of different things and there are different ways to do this and, and you know my project is unique nobody's going to be doing exactly what we did but there's there's lots of ways you can reach out and you can bring people in to connect with you thank you Right, next we have Florraine McConaughey from the um, Washington State Historical Society and also the, all right, here we go. All right. Hi, it's a pleasure to be part of this anthology today and report out to the field on, on our own project in Washington State. I'm going to try to limit my remarks to what I think will be useful to you in terms of reporting out. So I brought business cards here. If you'd like to know more, um, please don't hesitate to be in touch with me. So um, talking uh, to people over the last eight years, Washington State's Civil War experience when we were a territory brings smiles to many faces. This is totally counterintuitive. We're talking about the far northwest. What Civil War experience could we be talking about? David um, set us out at the beginning. You don't crowdsource for its own sake. We crowdsourced because we had a problem to solve that only crowdsourcing would solve. I think that's crucial. I think that if you are just trying to apply crowdsourcing in order to go through the motions, you're not going to have a successful project. Our project, we knew nothing about the Civil War in Washington Territory. There was no scholarship since Robert Johansson in the late 1950s. Um, that's not true anymore. We've learned a great deal, but we needed to crowdsource the research in a kind of radical trust because there was more work than any one or two scholars could possibly do. So there's a genuine need there that only crowdsourcing could solve. Our geographic focus for our read-in, you see before you and you see our time focus. We wanted to start with the Dred Scott decision, which had such tremendous consequences in Washington Territory, making that territory open to slavery, and then to end in 1871 to just get ourselves into the beginning of Reconstruction. The read-in was a read-in throughout the state in primary source materials, microfilmed, digitized, hard copy, that dealt with that place and that period of time to learn about what the Civil War, antebellum Civil War, and immediately Reconstruction experience was. This was a public history project, and it turned out that we did create a website and that we do have an online collection. But my intent as a public historian was to give away the skills of doing history. That's what good public history is. It's a little bit different than the digital humanities. And those two have become kind of allied like that. I kind of think of them separately. And it was my pleasure as a historian and my job to give away the skills of making meaning of the Civil War in Washington State. If the sesquicentennial served any purpose, it was to discuss and make meaning out of the same issues that precipitated the war 150 years ago. I don't think we did a great deal of that in the sesquicentennial, but we did in Washington. This is what the splash page for the Civil War Pathways website looked like when it was an attract screen. 
So we needed to recruit readers from throughout our state. How many did we want? I hoped for 300. And we did attract 275 whom we trained. How did we attract them? This was so counterintuitive that there was a civil war to explore, that we had journalists all over us to interview um, the director of the Washington State Historical Society, me, just other people who were involved in the project to say, what in the world are you talking about? Slaves in Washington, an underground railroad on Puget Sound, the Knights of the Golden Circle in Washington Territory trying to secede the West. All of these things were true. All of these things were new to ordinary people um, in, in our state. So this was our splash page, and these were our goals. And as you read them, you will know that these were generated by a committee. And in terms of reporting out to you, I would say, man, oh, man, when you've got six goals or five, whatever it is, you've got maybe too many. Um, and it, it, it became a bit ha hard to meet all of them. Washington State Historical Society um, is perceived as an elitist institution in our state. Um, I don't think that's unfair. It has a very limited reach outside of Tacoma. Um, didn't used to, but there's been a series of defundings that have made it that way. The, the idea of engaging the people of our state as researchers with us in a public history enterprise where they received an assignment in primary source material and mastered that three months on microfilm of the pioneer and Democrat in 1860 or a sheaf of letters from Isaac Eby in Coopville on Whidbey Island. Whatever their assignment was, they were the master. They became responsible for that. That kind of engagement was a very different kind of outreach for the Washington State History Museum which was accustomed to, oh, much more traditional kinds of things, and you can go to sessions and learn about them here as well as elsewhere. I wanted to build capacity because I am hoping that we'll be able to do a read-in for World War I in Washington State. I would love to see that as a national initiative. I think we need to claim this history and make meaning as ordinary citizens, not just in a kind of top-down, this is what it all means, I'm going to write a book about it, I'm going to curate a show. These wars, these experiences belong to all of us, but confidence and competence in building capacity um, that, that is, is what we were hoping to do. If you've ever read newspaper articles or diaries or correspondence from the 1860s, you know how difficult it is. Many of our readers had high school educations and no more. And they, they, they rose to the occasion um, and they built their capacity to read and make meaning of difficult material. Civil War Pathways was an exhibit at the Washington State Historical Society that just closed there, and I curated it, but I crowd curated it. So many times I would have a question like, mm -hmm. in the Seattle Times in 1864, there is a rumor reported that Native people are being armed by the British from Victoria, supplied with money from Confederate agents to attack settlements on Puget Sound. I've got that in Seattle. Has anybody got anything like that in southeastern Washington, northeastern Washington, southwestern Washington? I had my answers in 20 minutes in our blog from people who had read the Walla Walla Statesman or some other source and we crowd curated that show together. 
To increase understanding of the war and its legacies, Washington is a very complacent state about its racial inheritances. It regards the Civil War and its issues as long ago, far away, and back east. Um, I think we were able to refresh that um, and, and make that a more realistic thing. And then to develop an online database and digital collection. There's a lot going on here. This is the profile. These are the numbers. That's the time frame, although actually I'm still receiving material from um, laggardly readers that will be going in. Look at the budget. One of the reasons that this, this project took the form that it did is that we were not able to get the funding that we had hoped for in a federal grant that we applied for. And in reading the um, comments by the reviewers, as kind as they were, this is not a battlefield state. There's a limited num amount of resources to be shared during the Civil War sesquicentennial and pouring $500,000 into our public history project in Washington State seemed ludicrous to the reviewers and we didn't get our funding. So we had to piece it together another way. Of that $25,000, four went to me a good 10 went to the folks who built our Omeka database, um, and, and there were other expenses of travel and all of that sort of thing. Um, two part-time, is that two? Let's see. Yeah, two part-time staff, I was one of those people, and five volunteer editors. These were people whose work emerged as they began to post records to be queued up for the website that I could see that they were exceptionally good leaders, mentors, that they could really help all of the other readers to accomplish their work. We did 10 day-long trainings of potential readers throughout the state. Um, in terms of lessons learned, that wasn't enough. We needed the resources to do meetups. We needed the resources for checkbacks. There was a social aspect to this that while I was aware of it, I just couldn't figure out how to be in Spokane and Walla Walla and Seattle and Bellingham and Vancouver all at the same time. 275 readers trained out of the 300 that we hoped for, and 150 of them were solved. 210 of them completed their assignments. Many of them said, I didn't find any evidence. And you know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to let that go. I want to go read it too and make sure there wasn't any evidence there. I delegated this research, but I wanted, you know, wanted it to be successful. The 150 solid readers, there were people who quit their jobs. Um, one, the editorial writer at the Seattle Times got so excited about his assignment that he quit his job and took six assignments and is now writing a book about journalism in the Civil War in Washington Territory during the war. I mean, that's crazy, you know, but it really, it really did happen. There were people who took four and five assignments, and that helped us to get uh, a thorough, I'm sorry, I can't see you guys back there, a thoroughness that we would not otherwise have gotten. I feel uh, like I really need to rush so that um, David has some time here. So 2,600 scans, those were up by the beginning of the summer. There are now probably 2,800. These 1,600 visitors between October and February at the website, I think that's pretty extraordinary that their dwell time was 18 minutes. I mean, that's really a long time, and it's not just because they couldn't get it to work. Um, <laughs> really, um, they were looking at a series of things there. 
So let me just show you a couple of records. So we were asking individual readers, all of you, to read three months in the Walla Walla Statesman or three months here in the Washington Standard. So um, can you hear me okay? I'm the reader. I have to assign a subject. The Pacific Republic, the, the Confederacy. Um, the Portland Advertiser. Oh, right. Since we're recording. Okay. Yeah. I'm so sorry. That's all right. Okay, um, so the subject is here, the title of the article above it, the description. The Portland advertiser must be an eyesore to every loyal citizen. The great object of the treason party of the Pacific is the dismemberment of the Union and the establishment of a Pacific Confederacy. There's evidently a complete organization of the treason party on this coast. You'll see here that the reader excerpted a quote. And for many of our readers, that was more reliable. They felt more confident doing that than in synopsizing, summarizing, or making meaning. But what this is about is about the secession of the West Coast from the United States and Washington's role in that. If you go to Civil War Pathways and look around, you'll find dozens of articles about this. I'll skip that, I'm afraid. This is about the Knights of the Golden Circle. And I imagine many of you from the Midwest and the Southeast, well, throughout the United States, know about the Knights of the Golden Circle. We don't really think of them, think of them in California, but not in the far Northwest. So this is the organization that's agitating for the Pacific Confederacy. You want to join it, you need a long gun and a handgun, you have to send money to the Confederacy, swear to secrecy, drill by night, and... In Washington, the goal was to assassinate all of the Lincoln appointees, so the governor of the territory, all of the other appointees, and replace them with earmarked Confederate appointees. Pretty interesting, not well known to us before this work. Um, oh, I just shouldn't skip that. So this is, an, as a summary, this is a record um, that, in the same way that I've already described, describes the article, abstracts, it gives you the source, the publisher, the date, but then it gives you a scan of it. And this is one of the details in which the devil lay for this project. So this is, um, in 1864, in March, um, this is a critical article about the Civil War. There was tremendous resistance among Democrats in Washington Territory who outnumbered Republicans hugely because of Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, who were the presidents who preceded Lincoln, having appointed all of their cronies um, to offices in the Territory. So that is what this is about. That's what that scan looks like. That's what this scan looks like. This deals with a slave who ran away from Olympia, Washington Territory, on this tiny little underground railroad. This is from the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin. And this is just, um, it's just our good fortune that this happens to be digitized. To really do a comprehensive job of solving my problem of what is the history of the antebellum civil war and early reconstruction periods, we needed to do so much more work. I, I, I admire being able to continue a project. Our project came to an end, and it came to an end prematurely. This is another scan. Um, this is a, the Walla Walla Statesman, a Democratic newspaper um, in southeastern Washington, and so clearly shows what scholars argue about ad infinitum is what was the war fought for, and what was the war fought for through time. 
to a democratic newspaper after the Emancipation Proclamation. You can read it right here. What are we fighting for? Is it the Union, or is it the reconstruction of the Union on a basis of emancipation? Crystal clear in my state, um, and, and uh, just a, a, a wonderful um, find. This is not from a newspaper. This is a document that was found in a local historical society by a researcher. This is a post-war mass meeting to oppose the amendments to the Constitution, not that freed the slaves, but that, that made male male African-American men able to vote in, in the United States. That didn't come out very well. But this is a huge meeting to express resistance at the beginning of Reconstruction to the terms of Reconstruction. It allowed Washingtonians, in the context of the exhibit, in the context of our blog, and in the context of programs, to think about this. What were the hits? We met a real need. Um, 18 minutes at the site for each of our visitors, thousands of visitors by now who's using it, scholars, students, journalists, genealogists, and just ordinary people like, like us um, who want to know more and didn't know anything before, and it is a paradise if you are curious. Crowd curation really worked as I've described in developing the exhibition. And it is just a great pleasure when I would visit the exhibit to see so often readers from the read-in who were there saying, I, I found that. You know, I found that. We didn't know that before. I read it. I put it on the database. And we have a workstation there so that, so that they can show visitors their work. 150 solid readers loved the experience. The reading was hard. The technology was harder. I, I wished so much that I had had a cohort of graduate students to work with my readers to help them. Some of my best readers couldn't manage to scan the hard copy documents that they were reading. It really came down to that. And in our training, you know, the very cavalier young woman who did the tech training said, oh, just take your smartphone and make an image. And, you know, all of people who look like me were going, what the hell is she talking about? So we had a tremendous variety of images. And people who left the project, some of my finest African-American readers, Esther Mumford, if you know Washington State history, simply couldn't manage the tech. I was able to partner her with a graduate student mentor. But I didn't always know why people left. World War I read-in, when I you know, go back to my hotel room and look at my email, there will be a couple of people saying, well, is it going to start soon? The misses, the attrition. You know, we trained almost 300. We really ended with 150 solid readers, and that felt felt crummy. I felt bad about that. The scan quality varies wildly. I underestimated how much editing. I'm so sorry. Please don't go. Ah. Um, Omeka was hard for us to deal with, and I hope, I think David will speak about that. I think in reality, the te technical person that we hired was really not up to the task. And just because somebody has a business card and, and a CV doesn't necessarily mean that they're the right person for you. So Omeka is a, is a free platform. I can't remember who said freedom isn't free or free isn't free. We really could have done a better job. 
it's open question whether it's, it's comprehensive. It was a noble daring. I'm really proud we did this. Um, we, we really did build capacity among people in Washington State. So many people who didn't read read about our project in newspaper articles or have visited us on the web. It was modestly successful as a public history site and uh, project and modestly history as a project because of the website. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Right, um, so, so that we have um, some time for question and answer, I'm just going to give just a very quick um, of what we are doing. And I would like my presentation to actually open. Where did it go? There it is. Um, okay. So essentially, um, we have Ford's Theater are doing a project called Remembering Lincoln. It's a digital collection of responses to the assassination from the time just after it happened. So our goal is to personalize and localize the assassination, to make it not just in, um, you know, in Washington, but everywhere. Problem, we are based in Washington, and we don't really have a big collection outside of Washington. Solution, we are working with a wide range of partner institutions, including some people who are represented in this room, to bring together the, um, the items that show how people in different communities responded to the Lincoln assassination. So we have 15 partner institutions for the first round of our grant. Um, this is an IMLS grant for doing this project. We have some other partner institutions so really quickly on some of the lessons learned through this process, that we need clear parameters for what we're looking for, you know, for something like this. Also, clear metadata standards. We've also had to do a lot of outreach, even for institutional crowdsourcing. Find out who has what. And a lot of times institutions don't know what they have. You know, many of you, I'm sure your, your collections aren't cataloged down to the item level. So sometimes that's even taken research. So we've actually included a stipend in our, um, in our project. Also, one of the big things is to be flexible. And also, a big question is, is partnership the right means? Do you want to do a regular rights and reproductions process for something like this? You might need to do that instead. It really, for our project, we found that for especially smaller organizations, a partnership was the right means, where we do a flat, Okay, you're a partner, $1,000. Sometimes they've actually hired graduate assistants to do the research because institutions, again, don't always, you know, don't always know, do we have the materials or not? Usually it's a yeah, pretty good premonition. So um, very quickly, we've done a very little bit of individual crowdsourcing with this. We're hoping that more will come about next year. We have a history pin site set up, and we actually did have somebody who um, took a picture of a display case in the courthouse a um, few hours east of here in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, that had items from a soldier who participated in the Lincoln funeral train. So we would not have found out about that otherwise. That's also been the one example that we can point to so far <laughs> of individual crowdsourcing. However, something that we can also say is that... Um, you know, be flexible with 
use cases as well with how people actually use your things. We were expecting that this would be a way for people to share things that they owned. Instead, we've had a couple of people besides this one person ask us about, well, can I just tell you about things that I know about that might be somewhere else? We thought, you know, that's a really, that's also another really good way. A lot of people have knowledge of these things. So, um, just very quickly, yeah, so, you know, also a question is, for us, 150-year-old items, how many exist in private collections? Is individual crowdsourcing going to be really a way to build this collection? This is a large part of why we've been doing this institutionally so far. Also, we had the tiers in that planning meeting came about in a discussion about vetting of crowdsourced materials. But we also realized, you know, how many of you in a library, archive, or museum just take anything that somebody plops in the door and hands you? And they say, this is my great-great-great-grandma's this. You really don't. You vet it. So we actually worked with some of our partner organizations on developing vetting standards. So this is really you know, some, an item that someone would contribute, very similar to when somebody walks in your door with something. It is because it's digital doesn't make that a different thing. That's another lesson right there. So next up, we're contracting for the website. Look for us in March 2015. I have business cards up here. I also have a um, information sheet about our Remembering Lincoln project. Really sorry about how we've run over. So we're um, going to take some questions from you folks. I know that we have a few minutes left. Anybody have any questions for us? Yes. Yeah, so that was really interesting to hear about the read-in. I was curious, um, for the pieces that you were having people read, were they accessing those digitally or on microfilm, or how were they obtaining the material that they were reading? That's a great, great question. All of the above. So some of, these hard, some of these materials were in university and college archives. Others were in public library archives. Others were in historical societies. Um, many of the newspapers were not digitized. They were on microfilm. So it's hard copy microfilm and digitized material. And that's one of the reasons the, the images are so chaotic. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, we didn't have the da David's really good standards because we didn't want to frighten anybody away. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Others? Somebody else have a question? Any other questions? Okay, well, it looks like we actually will end on time after all. <laughs> so um, thank you, everybody, for coming. And um, again, we have some all of us have information about our projects up here and would love to talk with you folks more. So thank you, everybody. Oh, you have to. <laughs> yep, let me get this one as well.